Hello and good evening. You are welcome to Reader's Hour on Quarantine FM. You're joined by your hosts, Catherine Gallagher and Anna Dalton. In Reader's Hour, we'll be taking a look at Irish literature in all forms, including fiction, drama, essays, poetry, journalism and everything in between. On today's show, we are going to hear from journalist Gabby Agatha and later on, we'll be chatting about John Banfield's recent comments about the Booker Prize and cancel culture. But at the top of the show, we're going to pick up on last week's discussion on censorship in Ireland and take a look at maybe how things progressed in the period after that, in the middle of the 20th century. But we'll just quickly reflect on the censorship Um. We both agreed that it was quite extreme, Anna. Yeah, we did. Yeah, and it was interesting to kind of look at the, um, the kind of multifaceted, um, process of kind of as we talked about, you know, placing different people in parishes and lobbying, bookshops to kind of and and news agents to stop selling papers and just kind of really systematically, um, curbing what was allowed to be circulated over a number of decades and then we kind of did touch on some of the authors who were banned and kind of moving towards the 60s when the Catholic Church was very much still in power but maybe things were starting to change a little bit. And I'd say from I I mentioned this last week that from the period of the 1960s onwards it kind of did in terms of media and especially in the 70s, I would say, in terms of media and literature, things did begin to relax a little bit. There's a couple of really key things that happened that allowed for a little bit of relaxation of some of the content. And a lot of the content that would have been censored would have pertained to anything to do with family planning, anything that threatened general morality in Ireland and anything that threatened kind of I suppose the strength of the Catholic Church or that that threatened Catholicism. A couple of the the main things that happened was the introduction of television. Uh, You could talk about the setup of RTE you know across the whole podcast if you wanted to. Um, There's television. The church actually did have a big hand in the coverage of RTE in the first few years but it's not a literature thing and we, we don't have time to get into it either, but television was a huge thing. It was a visual and audio me- uh, audio medium. There was television, there was free education, and then the rise or the inclusion of women's journalism. And we'll, we'll get to that a little bit more in detail and how that came to be. But just to really briefly mention, there was a couple of... um. There's a couple of changes made in legislation to allow for, I suppose, certain things to be talked about more freely. So in 1967, the Minister for Justice, Brian Lenehan, introduced legislation that it pretty much meant that if a book was banned, it would be banned for 12 years rather than indefinitely. Mm -hmm. So from... Once that was enacted in 1967, that meant immediately that 5,000 books that were previously banned were taken off the censorship list, which is a lot. 
And then in the 19, towards the end of the 1970s, then there was a couple of, there's a couple of uh, acts that were brought in to allow for publications to talk about or print materials on termination of pregnancy outside of the state. But, however, no publications uh, were allowed to be published that advocated or promoted abortion. So there was, there was some relaxation in it. So with that said, um, it allowed for women's issues to be talked a little bit more freely to a certain extent, although it has to be said. Um, so the 1970s then, this relates so much to the feminist movement as well that was going yeah. on um Anna do you if you were to synopsize maybe feminism in in, in around the 1970s it, we think things like um the late late show maybe with Gay Byrne and those couple of iconic shows with the demonstration of the condom and stuff like that um yeah. It was huge for us, at the, for the country at the time, wasn't it? I think so. And yeah, I I feel like it was, it's such an important time. And kind of as you said that RTE started with kind of under the thumb or under very strict regulation of the church. So the fact then that it started to change and it became a place where debate about public issues including censorship and women's rights, kind of started to filter into it. So the Late Late Show could be a bit of a platform to to start talking about those issues, um, which, you know, is huge. And, and the fact that then everybody would have watched it, you know, got everybody talking about it. So it really, I think, probably propelled um, the change. And obviously, yeah, I mean, picking up from this was happening in a lot of other countries at the time, gathering pace kind of in America, um, the UK, in France, in, in, in a lot of different countries, um, kind of a, a renewed vigour of women's rights, um, along with kind of, I suppose that was a, a time in kind of late 60s and 70s where there are a lot of different protest movements, um, you know, anti-Vietnam, off the back of the civil rights movements, there was still, you know, a lot of momentum for racial justice and then the women's movement as well. So there was a lot of, I think, energy um, at the time. And some of that did seem to kind of make an influence over in, here in Ireland as well. Um, one of the main movements, there, there was a couple of associations that were set up in Ireland by women. One of the main ones, obviously, was the the Irish Women's Liberation Movement. And some of the key people involved in that would actually become involved in the media as well. And they, they would have influenced a lot of what was happening maybe inside, like newsrooms and the, the agendas. Um, so that was one thing. But there was a couple of other. There was the Irish Country Women's Association that was set up in 1910. They advocated for like the standards of living in rural Ireland and very much took like the right to education approach. There was the Irish Housewives Association set up in 1942. They were an largely middle class group and they focused on issues of poverty, women's welfare and they campaigned by petitioning to the state for support. 
there was the Widows Association, the Women's Graduates Association, and like I said, the Irish Women's Liberation Movement, which differed quite a lot from the, the, the aforementioned associations. The Irish Women's Liberation Movement was set up in 1970. They were, like as I said, like they would have been a lot less moderate uh, in their demands, wouldn't have been seen as uh, socially quote-unquote respectable as the other associations. They didn't petition the state directly. Instead, they tried to work in and around the, the media, all the different mediums that were available at the time. They, they took a, like a significantly different approach. And this did make the other associations quite weary because they thought it would have received quite a lot of backlash. But it did kind of ultimately work work in women's favour in the end. But the inclusion of women in newsrooms was was very slow. Um, even in the late 1960s, women predominantly, if they were working in journalism, they would have been doing something what was called copy taking, which is where they would be on the phone to a male journalist somewhere and they would the, the journalist would be <clears throat> dictating a story to the person on the phone and they would be typing it out. That's mainly what they did for quite a long time and to allocate the role of a journalist to a woman at that time was quite rare. And up until the end of the 1980s, my original also was the 1990s, but it was, it was the 1980s, some national titles would have still recruited through family and friends. Nepotism was alive and well. You could say it still is in Ireland. <laughs> um, Good. But... Where so there was a huge you have to imagine a huge like like male dominated network, and if you didn't have that family or friend connection, you would have socialized in the pubs and bars. Journalists, their stereotype one of their stereotypes is that they're big drinkers, uh, because there's there's a lot of this kind of meeting up with sources and meeting up with other mm. journalists and colleagues. There's that that that's something even when I was in college was mentioned quite a bit. So to network or to maybe get your foot in the door, you would have gone to the pubs and bars. But at that time, women were still expected to socialise in the lounge, in the women's lounge. They wouldn't have been expected to be in the bar, you know, buying buying pints, you know, with the lads. They wouldn't they, you know, that was just the norm at the time. So women had to overcome this boy club and how to yeah. get their foot in the door. And ultimately, what's said in kind of the literature again and again is they had to become one of the boys to try and and, and get in there. Um, so um, even Nell, Nell McCafferty, um, a lot of us will know Nell, um, when she got... A job offer for the Irish Times. She couldn't believe it, and she said, "Um, I was dazed. Now I had a guaranteed job for life. I had never conceived of such a thing. Women got married or became teachers or both." Um. And one of the the main things I think in the country was women's first. 
these were the kind of the first of the women's pages in Ireland and it was in the Irish Times. Donald Foley, the news editor for the Irish Times, was noted for having a particular awareness and and awareness and just a general interest in having more women involved in the paper at the time. And between him and Douglas Gage Boy, <coughs> excuse me, the, the main editor, between the news editor and the main editor in um in around the late nineteen sixties, both men they kind of clubbed together and they said, Look this is me paraphrasing, but they said, Look, they knew feminism was hot, you know, was was big mm-hmm. and it was you know, it wasn't going away. They recognised it. The Irish Times would have been one of the more liberal papers anyway at the time. It wouldn't have had a a strong like Catholic viewpoint because it, it wasn't even set up from a Catholic viewpoint to begin with. So they kind of clubbed together and they said, look, we, you know, we kind of need to do something about this. So they approached Mary Maher to to become involved in what would become Women's First and the objective of these pages was to create a section that highlighted news affecting women uh, but also to broaden the market and again this is another feature of journalism and media at the time is enlargement and expanding of media and new titles on the horizon. So it proved to, to cut a long story short, it, it proved to be a huge success and other newspapers, the Irish Press, uh, the Irish Independent, followed suit with similar kind of women's pages. And women's pages or women's kind of content geared towards women up until that point would have been like baking or baking or, you know, knitting skills or would have been um cooking or pretty much how to be a housewife you know that's the content that would have been in uh in the pages at the time but these women's pages were actually talking about you know employment because up until i think 1974 if you're a woman working in the public service and you got married you had to leave your job yeah, it um, really surprises me how late that was, <laughs> that that rule stood. Th- these were the kind of things that weren't talked about up until this point, like sex, marriage, you know, um, employment for women and talking about the real issues. Now, it is said that at the time that while it, it, it was a revolution in many ways, because it was like the, the feminine feminism movement was and it was reflected in the media but there was like I said this element still of being one of the boys and having to maybe alter their practices or their behavior or maybe would have accepted things being said that you wouldn't accept now and that was unfortunately the lay of the land in in a lot of industries at the time I just thought that talking about maybe the rise of women's journalism would would be one of the, the better lenses to look through in terms of 
media moving on in Ireland a bit. Geraldine Kennedy, I'll uh, I'll finish up with her. She ended up becoming uh, the editor of the Irish Times in 2002 until 2011. That in order for her to cover things that she really wanted to, to cover, like in particularly maybe dangerous situations, she was always told, no, it's too dangerous. Like, that's not a place for, for a woman to go. Mm-hmm. And she, she kind of, at, at one point or another, she she just wasn't waiting for authorities' approval and she would go anyway. So women maybe did have to risk more to actually be yeah. recognised and allowed to cover what they wanted to cover. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's interesting that both Kennedy and Mary Maher kind of said... Do you know that they found, you know, they were well able, I suppose, for the job. But it, it, it's still, I think, it's a testament maybe to how strong a force each of them were to be able to break through to Hackett as the only woman to have to push through their own agenda, you know, as you say, to kind of give themselves license to cover stories that people didn't really think they should be covering, but they just had to really drive it. So I feel like both of them are quite, in those quotes, quite self-effacing about how how difficult and extraordinary it really was for them to, to do that. And, you know, it's had such a huge consequence for, you know, uh, women journalists coming after them who who were able to, you know, to, to make their careers since. So, Catherine, I know that you were chatting to Gabia earlier in the week. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what the two of you were discussing? Yeah, I was talking to Gabia Gatha-Fiscata this week. She is a staff reporter with the Irish Independent. I know Gabia actually through our studies together in journalism in DCU and pretty much from the get-go, Gabia started working with the independent right after college she she was doing weekend shifts with them in her final year of college building up that portfolio and um she's she's been there since she's re- she has experience with the Roscommon Herald and, and Oxygen.ie as well when, when she was a bit younger and Gabby how are you before we get into the rest of us Good, good. I'm looking forward to Christmas. I'm looking forward to having the mad December rush. Looking forward to that finishing and just, yeah, the new year. I, this morning we had the, uh, the good news of first person to be vaccinated with the coronavirus vaccine, um, which is brilliant news. So I'm, I'm feeling a bit more optimistic and hopeful by the day, to be honest. And that might be a good segue for my first question. I wasn't going to ask a little towards the end. But what has it been like as a young reporter uh, in, in national media uh, in, in these, as they say, unprecedented times? Has it been just unbelievable stuff altogether? Um, I think it's interesting that there's been so much news, like unlike ever before. Um, and... And we see that. I mean, we're all reading the news now. And especially at the start of the pandemic, when everything started to sort of change and, and, and shift very rapidly. I mean, people were tuning into daily Department of Health press conferences at six o'clock every evening. I mean, that's unprecedented stuff. No one, that's never happened before. 
Um, so my job actually changed a little bit at the start of the pandemic, which was just a coincidence in that we, at independent.ie, they created something called the Fast Desk, um, which is solely focused on breaking news. And I was put on, and that was actually very convenient because when the country first went into lockdown, I moved back to Roscommon, which is where I'm originally from, where my parents live. And it was good because it was a desk job and I could just get up in the morning and do it or stay up late in the evening and do it and get it done. But I did really miss the going out and about. That's one of my favourite parts of being a news reporter is that you go out and you meet people. And, you know, there's only so much sort of live stream press conferences that you can tune into before it all starts blurring into the one. And I have moved back to Dublin. I moved back sort of late in the summer. And I have been out about a tiny bit not as much as I'd like, but unfortunately with the restrictions, you know, going into going in and meeting people, not always the best, meeting complete strangers and, you know, hassling them for, for stories or whatever, not always the best shout. Um, but I think, you know, it's been an interesting time. There's been a lot of news. You have to be very, very quick, very accurate, you know, more so than ever before, because if you get something wrong, you know, you're misinforming the public in, a, in quite a big way because there's so much... There's such a big microscope and a, and a sort of magnifying glass on everything that you report now is especially to do with coronavirus. So you have to be very careful, more so than I think ever before, really. And for you, in a post-COVID period, hopefully in the not-too-distant future, do you think that, like you said there, journalism practices and political communication methods really, like you said, the, the briefings mm. and the conferences a lot of adapting to a time of crisis. Do you think that some of these practices will be just, will, will carry forward in a post-COVID period? Like, do you think that the face of journalism is just not going to be quite the same again? Or do you think it's been given a, a renewed kind of energy or level of importance to maybe people who wouldn't have followed the news much beforehand yeah i think news has always been important i think the pandemic has emphasized how important it really is and how crucial it is for people but i think the really big shift has been in digital you know we don't go out in the morning and buy the newspaper to see what the daily coronavirus cases are we see them when they break at you know, half past five, six o'clock on our phones because there's a push alert that comes up. A lot of people, that's that's how they get their news. And I think it's really emphasized the importance of digital first. And, you know, for any prolific Twitter user, people who are mad for the Twitter and who, who love the social media app, they'll find that that's where the news actually breaks a lot of the time, um, journalists tweeting. So, yeah, I do think there's been a lot of lessons learned. It's interesting that you asked about political communications, both on the political communication front and the journalism front. You know, I think from the journalistic side, we've found that maybe we need to be faster than ever before on the ball, <clears throat> more so now than ever before. But I think from the, you know, government buildings, Leinster House side, I suppose the messaging and the tone you know, we saw a good few interviews where politicians came out and said, well, sure, everything's a risk, you know, jumping on trampling is a risk. You know, it's it's that kind of messaging that you have to be a little bit careful about. And, you know, I think a few politicians have learned the hard lessons of, you know, maybe something that you would have gotten away with before, 
isn't really going to fly now. Um, and you have to be very careful in how you communicate things and to be clear and to be, I suppose, <clears throat> transparent with people and open with people. And if you're asked questions, you know, answer them. And we saw a few coronavirus related scandals, of course, the biggest one being Golfgate <clears throat> in Clifton, when we saw um, politicians and high-ranking members of society go to a dinner um, by the Oireachtas Golf Society. And that was such an interesting story because, you know, here's a clear breach of these, you know, harsh restrictions that we all have to abide by. And these high higher-ranking members of society are, some of them immediately apologize and resign, like Derek Leary, who is a Minister for Agriculture, and some of them were less quick to do so. So I think it's interesting, you know, it is a pandemic and it's such a huge, big story, but how it can translate in all these different scenarios and how it can ultimately teach us about Irish society and how different people react to different things. You touched there on digital first, excuse me, digital first journalism and when we were in college, like data-driven decisions and data-driven agenda setting. And for you in the Henry Grattan building in DCU, sitting in your lectures, listening to this, did you ever think that, because I know myself personally, when I would hear about like data-driven decisions, it was such a kind of, it caused a lot of friction in my mind or tension because it kind of, it it's just not, maybe seemingly natural to, to maybe a, a young journalism student you, you think of well what's newsworthy and the inverted pyramid and what's of public interest not data-driven decisions yeah. but obviously like you said like the the push notifications the reporting on covid and Golfgate, that's all in the public interest what are your feelings did you have conflicting feelings when you were a bit younger about digital journalism or were you indifferent to it I think, you know, it's very important, you said data-driven. So I think it's very important to kind of make the distinguish between, distinguishment between data-driven and data-informed mm -hmm. decisions, which I think, certainly in my newsroom, that's, we have data-informed decisions, that we look at the data, we, we are aware of it, we know what it means, and we make conclusions based off it, but our decisions are not driven solely by what's in the data. I think in in college you are taught, you know, a, a very a certain version of how you should do reporting and how maybe you should do journalism. And it's obviously it's completely valid. But when you go from one newsroom to the next, I mean, they all vary. They might be very similar in, in many ways, but they do vary. And the reality is when you write a story, you want people to read it. And if it has you know, a headline that's not exciting or if the story is presented in quite a boring way, for example, maybe it has like a stock image and just plain text, you know, people are, are quite unlikely to, to read it because it's not very interesting. But if you change up the headline to make it more, for example, SEO friendly, or maybe you put an interesting quote in the headline, and it's, you know, you have to be very careful with terms like clickbait. You know, it, it, of course, there is sole clickbait where you know it's very obvious that the whole purpose of that headline is to get people to click on it but there's a difference between having a clickbait headline 
that's completely inaccurate to the story, doesn't fit it, you know, is there solely for designed to people for literally for people to click on it and generate some sort of advert revenue. And then a headline which is data informed, SEO friendly, interesting, accurate to the story, fits the story, and entices the reader to read it. So I think certainly because when I first started working for the Irish Independent, I started working online and I, a lot of my work now still is um, primarily online. I do write headlines a lot of the time. I don't have the final say on them. You know, they are um, looked at and read, but you know, if a story is interesting, if the title of it is interesting, if the lead is interesting, you know, it's it's. I think it's about making that data informed decision, know what the data is, and making that data informed decision. And it's not. I think it's you know, clickbait is one thing, but just because a story has an interesting headline does not mean that it's clickbait. And what was it for you when you were younger, picking like, okay, I'm going to go to CSU or I'm. You know, I'm going to put myself forward to work in a, in a paper, do shifts in my final year of college. What was it? What what kind of bug did you catch? What went wrong? <laughs> Not at all, no. <laughs> <laughs> so my sister went to DCU. She did global business in German and she started college in, I believe, 09, 2009. So I, me and my parents went up to visit her and I knew immediately, you know, she lived in Hampstead, which is the accommodation that myself and Catherine have lived in on campus. And I was like, yeah, I want to go here. You know, I'd taken a walk around the, the campus and I was like, yeah, I want to go here. I've always been big into writing. I was I was a really big, um, I really liked writing. I enjoyed English when I was in primary school. So I knew I wanted to be a writer. And it wasn't until... <clears throat> My sister went to DCU and I looked at the courses that DCU had on offer. And I thought, okay, if I study English, I mean, that's very vague. You know, where am I going to go with that? Or where where would that lead me? And then the School of Communications had three courses, which was multimedia communications and journalism. And journalism sort of caught my eye. And I think I was about 12 years old when I did this big search. And I thought, okay, journalism. And I thought about journalism for a good couple of years. And the very first newspaper that I... Uh, went and got some work experience and was the Roscommon Herald, which um, was a paper that I went on to later do a bit of work for. I uh, sort of did work for them on and off for, a, you know, a good number of years. And I just, I, I enjoyed it, you know. Um, I wasn't very much into news, as you know yourself, Catherine, until very, very late in college. I mean, even even final year. I think it wasn't really until I started working at the, at the Irish Independent that I I kind of started to really enjoy the news beat. I was really into writing news features and more human interest stories. I was never a really huge big fan of, of news, hard news, but it's it's a very good skill to have. It's, a, it's an enjoyable skill to have, and it's something that is fun. You know, if you go out and you chase a news story, if you're doorstepping a politician, you're getting the latest line from them. It can be a very exciting job to do. And... I don't know. I think it's interesting. I think I sort of grew into journalism as opposed to journalism growing on me. I think I kind of grew into it as I went along because initially I wanted to do fashion journalism for years and years when I was in school. Um, when I got to college, I kind of got sick of that idea. Um, I, I felt like I didn't really fit in with the very stylish, ultra cool uh, gang of college. So I 
you know, shifted more towards the College View, which is our student paper in DCU. And I found that I really admired a lot of the reporters there. Just to name a few, I think even when I was in first year, Hayley Halpin, who now works at the Journal, you know, she, I remember just thinking Hayley was just the best because she had this big story about student accommodation in St. Pat's, on St. Pat's campus. And I remember it, it was not, it, it started off in the College View and then it went, I think, to the Indo and um, it, it sort of did the rounds and it was a huge story. It was a huge, huge scoop for her. And I remember being just like, oh my God, that's, that's, that's what a real journalist does, you know, that, and so, yeah, look, it's something that I think I really grew into and it's, it's interesting. I think the more I've kind of gone through the years, the more I've, and certainly when I was in college, I really, it really, really grew on me as I went through college and I said I did more of journalism, the more I realised I actually really quite liked it. You mentioned the student-led newspaper there, the College U, and because we were very involved in student media when we were in college and maybe over the last few years the the student media hasn't hasn't been as well this is across the board so I'm I'm not picking on any particular college that student led newspapers and media hasn't been as well received in their respective university communities but how important do you think sometimes we might forget even when we leave college how important you know, that we developed our skills there and, you know, cold calling and coming together and putting together a physical paper as well, which is something I think both in you and I feel for the current, you know, journalism students around the country that they mightn't be able to put together like a physical copy. How important do you think that a student-led publication, how important of a role that plays in the university community but also for for those media students as well i mean i think it's crucial you know and i think it's an absolutely vital resource i don't think it's going to surprise anybody that i'm i say that it is a very important learning exercise especially for student journalists who i know it's it's different across all different universities but you know for us as you said there you know we were involved in absolutely every aspect of the newspaper it wasn't just thinking of ideas and pitching stories and going out reporting on those stories. It was taking the copy, sub-editing the copy, fact-checking everything in it, making sure it's correct. And then actually taking those words and translating them onto the page, putting the page together, many laborious hours in the uh, Mac Labs, in the Henry Grattan, putting those pages together and you know, having, I remember the paper was due kind of Tuesday afternoon and then on the Monday evening you have your big meeting with all the editors and go through and find all of the mistakes and what people like and don't like. You know, very, very laborious work. But it really teaches you a lot about the newspaper and how it works. I think it's very important to have, you know, university-focused news on a, on a university campus, especially one as big as... DCU or Trinity or UCD because a lot of things happen within that campus that you know the national media might might very easily miss the local papers might not maybe know what's going on but you're there in the middle of it all there's so many stories there to be reported on and we've seen brilliant stories come out of the college view over the years you know be it the and a lot of the times it's the inner workings that many people frankly don't really un, un, understand or wouldn't be aware of unless you're in the college 
on the campus and you're aware of how the student body works um you know and and i think when you pay a lot of you know thousands of euro fees every year when you're paying thousands of euro in accommodation to live on the campus you're putting in you know blood sweat and tears into your course into your degree i think the least that you deserve is to know what's going on around you in that college and it's not about trying to find the bad but it, it's just reporting on what is happening you know as as is the crux of journalism and looking for stories and 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 looking for what is really going on out there so i yeah i think newspapers are a valuable resource they're difficult you know stories on campus are difficult to do right especially when some other reporters are a bit younger and you know they have less experience but at the end of the day look that's how you learn you make your mistakes and it's it's how it's how it's how you learn and you know the end result i think is is this really unique handcrafted news outlet that is really unless you have several different publications or media outlets on campus there's really nothing quite like it absolutely absolutely um in terms of your your own regular beats as they say that you have covered down through the years one of the main ones for you was student accommodation um what has been the is that something that you would still keep an eye on very much so or I, th- I think from speaking to you over the last few months like I think politics has really become more um of a focal point for you that's just as a, a, a friend observation but uh w- what do you think yourself I work as a news reporter so I do everything mm-hmm. you know I do news stories I do Dublin stories I do showbiz stories I do political um it's very hard to avoid politics because it's an it's intertwined into literally everything you know I I cover crime as well you know I've covered a couple of murder stories and you know they're, they're kind of hard to get away from so you do a bit of everything the work is very very varied there have been certain stories that I've come back to over um over over the years and the months and yes student accommodation was one of them um you know that was kind of a really big focal point for me in august 2019 when i uncovered that every single university had hiked um costs for accommodation for the coming academic year and that sort of dominated the news agenda for the week or so and then um back in september i also did a spread on I suppose COVID and student accommodation and a lot of these private student accommodation residences that are quite expensive compared to regular student accommodation, you know, they're really struggling and, and, and they're seeing their bookings fall. So yeah, student accommodation is always like something I keep my eye on. It's, I think in terms of Dublin, it's such, it's a part of the landscape almost of the city. So it's very hard to ignore. Politics, yeah, politics I do enjoy because it's, it's an interesting world, you know, that world of politics. And it's something that I think really I didn't follow it in that much excruciating detail before I started working in a newsroom. But now it's hard to avoid. And you find yourself, you're automatically listening to the radio in the morning. You're keeping an eye out for those big interviews. Just yesterday we had uh, Sinn Féin's Mary Lou MacDonald, who was on Claire Byrne, uh, you know, and it set the agenda for the, for the day. And I found myself even listening to that in the evening because I missed it in the morning. So it's hard to, you just want to hear, you know, you want to hear what goes on and, and you want to catch up. 
And some of the, the challenges of being a reporter, uh, again, another thing that came up for us in college, I remember was like having your own per- personal brand or and, and that means just having your own Twitter account. Um, one thing I've yeah. noticed now, it's always been a, th- a thread. It's always been something that's been brought up. But I, I've noticed some journalists saying it a bit more often recently I saw Fergal Bowers said something along the lines of it Jennifer Bray from the Irish Times just alluding to the fact that you know they're doing their job and they're they're seemingly getting a lot of just abuse for for reporting on what they are reporting on whether it's Covid I think the Jennifer Bray story I think was to do with Sinn Féin I, I, I think yeah. Is is that something that can be, be potentially be a huge turnoff for people in the business? Well, it's interesting because I actually don't get that much online hate. Either I don't see it and I'm delusional enough to not look at the not click on see see other replies under my tweets, or I don't pass any heat of it. Maybe it's out there, maybe I just haven't seen it, maybe I suppose you have to remember the certain sto- certain stories that you do. And when you t- take a website such as Twitter, or a, I call it a hell site, because I think it can be such a cesspit of negativity and people taking things to the extreme. And it, it's an echo chamber as well, you have to remember. It's a very small number of people really that are on Twitter. And it's a certain cohort and they create this echo chamber of the exact same ideas. But if you go out onto the street and you talk to people, that might not be their views and their opinions at all. So you have to be, I really try and I have to look at Twitter because, you know, it's, it's, I'll wear a lot of news breaks and I have to look at it. But the negativity comes from certain stories. So if you're a political reporter, it's absolutely inevitable that you're going to get hate from, you know, if you write a negative story about, Sinn Féin, you're going to get people from, you know, you're going to get one kind of abuse if you write a negative story about Fine Gael, you're going to get another kind of abuse if you write a negative story about Fianna Fáil, you, you're going to get another kind of abuse. And people say, well, you're so anti this or you're so anti that. And it's like, well, I'm just reporting what's happening out there. And I report, sometimes you write negative stories across all parties, you know, and it's not, it doesn't mean that you're biased, you're just doing your job at the end of the day. And... I think when it comes to coronavirus and, and that kind of reporting, people, people, I know I don't tweet any of my COVID stories really anymore, but people that can be very quick to jump and say, that's so negative and that's so, and it's, look, I'm just doing my job here. I think you have to be very aware. If you're on Twitter, I, I really try and, and think really ultra hard before I tweet. I have made a couple of mistakes in the past. Even, and I've, been, I've always been very careful with what I tweet. I've still made a few mistakes where I've had to go back and delete the tweet and say, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have tweeted that. And it happens to everybody, and that's just the reality of it. But if you're on Twitter, if your quote-unquote brand as a journalist is on Twitter, you have to be very careful about the things that you say, the things that you put out there. It's kind of funny because I think, you know, what do you get out of being negative towards a, a reporter? And if I see something that I disagree with on Twitter the last thing that I want to do is engage with it. So, yeah, unfortunately, if you're a journalist, it is a good idea for you to have a Twitter, but I think you have to be very careful how you go about it and put a lot of thought into it. And I always think, I always say, just think 
twice, three, four times before you press send on that tweet. And just the, the last question for you, Gabia, today. Um, I suppose it, it alludes to something that I, I asked you at the start, but one of the things about journalism that has been said is the barriers to it are, you know, there's long hours, um, you have to be very flexible, uh, just a lot, just the long hours in particular, late nights mm-hmm. or really early mornings, shift work, maybe if you're work, shift work like, like yourself or if you're working in broadcasting, we're doing this over Zoom, we're doing this interview over Zoom, do you think there'll be a bit more flexibility or do you think it'll just, in terms of reporting, when it's safe enough to do so that it's, it might snap back and there'll be the doorstep interviews again? I think there will be a lot more flexibility from working from home because I think a lot of companies that publish newspapers have realised, do you know what, we are paying millions and millions of euro in rent for these offices when actually we don't need them at all. I think it's inevitable that we're going to see offices reduced in size. And I think, yeah, absolutely, people are going to be given the option, look, do you want to stay working from home? Is that what you like? Maybe you'll be in work maybe two days a week, maybe all of your meetings will be all in the one day and you have a hectic day of meetings and then you go home and you don't rock up again for another week. It's it's absolutely, I think for journalists, a, a lot of them, you have to remember, like there are journalists in my own newsroom who I have never met, even though I've worked with them from the very beginning. For example, uh, Ralph Regal, who is one of our regional correspondents and he's based in Cork. I've never, I've never met Ralph, you know, and I've spoken to him on the phone a couple of times, but... He's based in Cork. He's never been in, you know, I don't think, I'm sure he's been in the newsroom, but there's no need for him to be in there at all in Dublin. I think it's, you know, I was speaking to one of my own editors and he said, look, I think the office should be treated as a drop-in centre, which it certainly, that's what level, I mean, through level five and throughout the first lockdown, nobody was in the office at all. But certainly moving forward, even if we have the vaccine, there will be a certain cohort of people, like, like I said, who have the meetings every day, who want need to be there face to face, who will come in. But I think for journalists who are out and about on the beach, on the streets, out going to press conferences, doing stories, or even the people that are just sitting at their desks and doing a job and they don't really need to be, you know, maybe they don't have too many meetings, don't have to come into the office. What's the point for them being, being in there? And I think they will be given the choice. You know, what do you want to do as opposed to being told what to do? Um, and I think that's going to be, journalism is just going to be one of the many industries affected by it. I mean, this is going to be across the board. Sure. And it's interesting because working from home certainly works for some people. I do like it. I, it's obviously a lot more convenient. But like I said, I do miss I do miss the fun of the newsroom. You know, the, like all the crack that you have in the newsroom and a big story breaks and this somebody starts running around and going, you know, making phone calls and you know, it is that kind of buzz that I miss, but I think we're going to have to just see it through and see where all of this new normal brings us, you know. I suppose we'd all just have to watch this space and, and see what happens. That's all we yeah. can do. I think that's all we have time for today, Gabby. But listen, great to talk to you. <laughs> Long time, no chat. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> uh, it was great to have you on and... Um, yeah, absolutely. Watch this space, not only for the country, but I think for you as well going forward. Um, 
I'm personally really excited to see where where you end up and and what heights you you set yourself to over the next while. So listen, thank you so much. Thank you, Catherine. I really appreciate it. So thank you to Gavia for talking to me this week. And if you want to keep tabs on Gavia for whatever reason, if you want to keep up to date with her work, she is on Twitter at Gabby says hey. So it's G A B Y says hey but more often than not you'll probably see her on the front page of the independent she's a piece there today so more often than not you'll see her byline in a shop near you and just for the final part of the show we're going to have a brief chat about john banville's recent controversial comments about the booker prize now you might have to fasten your seatbelts maybe for this one anna what did what did he say yeah, well, I think possibly a few people have seen this and mm-hmm. it's actually really not the first time John Banville's got himself in hot water with some controversial comments, but he was at it again um, last week. So basically he was being interviewed, I think, at a literary festival and he said he brought up, um, could I win the Booker Prize now as a straight white man? So I'll just actually read the, the longer quote. He brought up so this current suspicion about straight white men and basically questioned whether he was now at a disadvantage um, as a writer in terms of whether he could win prizes or not and said I would not like to be starting out now certainly it's very difficult and then he kind of decided to address the woke what he called the woke movement I despise this woke movement. Why were they asleep for so long? The same injustices were going on. It's becoming a religious cult. You see people kneeling in the street, holding up their fists. That's not going to do anything for black people. Black people or transgender people should not be given a special place. They should be given the same treatment as the rest of us. God, I can hear the Twitter comments going already. Do I care? Absolutely not. So, yeah, that that's what he said. And... As you kind of gather from that, he comes across as someone who's very kind of cranky, you know, and I think he that's we've heard that kind of tone from him before. But I think quite a lot of people were a bit taken aback by this. Um, I'm kind of questioning why he's bothering to wade into this argument, number one, as somebody who's already won the Booker, you know, he's so successful. He's one of, kind of Ireland's preeminent writers, really well known abroad. One of the issues there is that he so he makes this kind of kind of garbled point about, you know, trans and black people shouldn't be given special treatment, just equality, which kind of erases the whole point that they don't have it. So they need to we need to change a lot of things and and including like prize structures, which is a kind of a smaller element of it, but an important one in order to make sure that they're being considered and they have a fighting chance of winning compared to the likes of himself. So he, and the thing is that the winner this year, so last year it was jointly awarded to Margaret Atwood and Bernadine Evaristo. And then this year it was won by an author, um, Douglas Stewart, who's gay. And that was for a book called Shuggy Bane. So, um, yeah, basically, it's it's a bit of an issue that Banville is kind of questioning 
why they've won. He sort of seems to be implying there the reason they've won is because they fit into a minority group. I was quite amused to see that, you know, one of the, the Booker judges, um, you know, retorted, I think, on Twitter saying, you know, fuck you, John Manville, we judged on quality. You know, yeah. and just threw that out there. That was um, a poet whose name is Lem Sisse, who's one of the judges, um, and then just dismissed his comments. Um, so, yeah, she wasn't, um, or that person wasn't mincing their words anyway. Maybe this, this, this is, a, I'm playing devil's advocate here, but is there a sense that, like, established, successful, writers and see a new generation coming and do do like he's like by the sounds of of banville he sounds threatened Mm -hmm. he he what he feels he's been this this is me putting words in his mouth but for me reading those quotes to me speaks of a man that feels he's threatened by a young fright yeah accepting generation yeah I think you're right there seems to be an anxiety coming across there that his own work or his own viewpoint is becoming obsolete or something or it's not trendy but I just think that's so disingenuous because you know as a powerful white man his opinion will always be heard more than other people's and his writing you know he already he sell like he's so commercially as well successful as well as really well regarded say things like him saying I despise this woke movement and I just when people talk about that woke movement it's and they use air quotes and they're really condescending Mm -hmm. about it when we're talking about a huge array of you know of different movements really um you know that have been going on for a long time you know about minority rights black rights trans rights you know queer rights so it's it's just I don't really understand why people lump it all together into this one idea of woke and and try and act like I don't know like I think it's it's quite harsh against people who are have been doing so much work to try and gain that sort of equality and almost try as if saying that there's people just jumping on the bandwagon. Am I right in saying he was one of the individuals that signed this Harper's Magazine a letter on justice and open debate, or is that something completely different? Yes. I'm trying. So no, he signed he did. that. He signed that along with a lot of other people, um, including J.K. Rowling oh, and Salman Rushdie. Yeah, unsurprisingly, <laughs> she was she was one of them. Yeah, and like a lot of people sign it, and it's quite the thing is like it's quite a short letter. Um, yeah. it's quite vague. Yeah, and like what are they saying? Yeah, the sort it that's sort of that's one of the things I thought about as well is that it can sort of mean anything, and they're sort of saying, you know, people are too quick to condemn writers or kind of public figures for making a mistake, and you know we need to have a a more fair and just sort of I don't know culture or it just it's very vague because I think it's really I suppose people complaining about you know being quote cancelled 
But I think that word is thrown around so much when, mm-hmm. you know, I feel like when you're in when you're a public figure, you do have to accept a certain amount of, you know, critique for things that you say. So the likes of J.K. Rowling, you know, well, that's a whole other issue and we're not, we don't really have time <laughs> to get into that whole thing today, so we won't. But I agree with you that the, the letter was incredibly vague and I feel just the last point I'll make on it that I did you mention like the far right a few times in it or a couple of times I feel there was mm-hmm. too much of an attempt in something that's so vague I read it two or three times I can't really make head nor tail of it to be honest <laughs> um I read it a couple of times I feel there's too much of an attempt being made to be like we're not the the far right okay, we're not the far right. And if you kind of have to say that in not so many words a couple of times in a relatively short piece, why are you being so defensive? You know? Yeah, I I think Did you pick up on that too? (laughs) Yeah, I I did. I I did. It it was almost like it's so careful. Yeah, exactly. I think you're, it starts to make you questionable. I wasn't thinking you were a far right activist until you kept telling me that you're not, you know. So <laughs> that's, yeah, that's well observed. But um, yeah, no, interesting. And um... it is interesting. And I do wonder, actually, if, if it is maybe there is definitely an element of, of Banville playing to the media. I mean, he said things before. He's had a go with Salman Rushdie and called him a second-rate writer. He's, you know, famously, he's he writes crime books, I think formerly, formerly under a pen name, but now I think the latest one came out under his own name, but he used to publish under the pseudonym Benjamin Black. And then he kind of was very flippantly just said, oh yeah, I can kind of, you know, write one of those in no time you know it's not almost as if like it's not real writing on offended a load of people you know who who what they write is crime and that's their creative endeavor and he's kind of saying oh it's not the real serious stuff so he often comes out with these things and maybe he is just looking to get a bit of airtime um but yeah pretty pretty reprehensible stuff anyway in my opinion (laughs) so that's all we have for you this week on reader's hour we hope you enjoyed tuning in don't forget you can find us on Twitter at Readers Hour and you can get in touch via email readershour at gmail.com. As always, we will be sharing links later where you can listen back wherever you catch your podcasts. So don't be afraid to spread the word. Yeah, and mind yourselves, take care, enjoy your Saturday and we'll be talking to you again next weekend.